Thanks, Robert. Join me in prayer, would you? Our Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this morning. We thank you for this opportunity. We thank you that our church can come back together again. Lord, our prayer now is that there will be a vaccine, a cure for this coronavirus so that we can get back to normal. Father, I pray for all the churches that are opening and have already opened, Father, can just continue to bless them. I pray that the message of the gospel will permeate this world in spite of these problems. Lord, I pray for this country, and I'm asking, Lord, that you would work in this election, that, Father, you would preserve this way of life, this nation and its strength and its power. And, Lord, I just ask that you would intervene, Father, and go before us. I pray for peace in this nation. I pray for godliness. I pray for just everyone to, to work together to make this the best nation that could possibly be. So, Father, continue to lead us and guide us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, why don't we all be seated. All right, so we're back uh, in church again. Oh, the children. Um, Cody's back there waving. Children have to be dismissed. Children, you're free to go. (coughs) While they're leaving, if you have not got one of our little communion cups... Go back and get one real quick, okay, because you're going to need that at the end of the service. They're not going to be distributed, so you'll need to get one. Make sure you've got it. Yes, it has come to this, folks, prepackaged. I don't know what to tell you. All right, while they're doing that, let me ask you a question. And to be honest, okay, we've been filming these um, sermons for the past four or five weeks. How many of you are watching them? Raise your hand. All right, it's not as humbling as I thought it might be. <laughs> Tim and I are, are going to revolt. What? All right. Um, Tim and I, uh, this is a lot of trouble that we've gone through each week for this, and if nobody's watching them, we're really going to be mad. So I'm glad that you've been watching them. If you have been, then you know we're in this series on grace, and I want to encourage you, if you have missed any of these, to get them. Uh, like I said on the video, um, these messages are each like a piece of a puzzle. And at the end of the series, hopefully you'll have a good, clear understanding of the grace of God and just how immense it is and uh, how wonderful it is, how amazing it is. Um, but each one of these messages stands alone or doesn't stand alone. And if you try to make it, it may not make a lot of sense to you because it's building. And things are overlapping, things are building. So I'll, a lot of this you'll say, well, I've heard that a few weeks on the a few weeks ago. Yes, you did. Some of that you did. And that's the way it is because I'm, keep, I'm trying to pull it all together in your thinking so that it begins to make sense to you. Back when I was growing up, we watched a lot of game shows. I loved the game shows. And um, one of the ones that I especially liked was To Tell the Truth. Now, they've remade that one, and it's come back, and uh, if you may have seen it on the TV, but it's the modern version of it. But here's basically the basic premise. Here's how it works. There's a panel, usually of celebrities, that are uh, there, and they are trying to guess the real identity of somebody. And it may be somebody, I'm just going to throw something out here. They rode across the Atlantic Ocean in a canoe or something, I don't, you know, something bizarre. But they are trying to guess who did that. And so each of these three people will be claiming to be that person, and they'll guess and ask them questions. And as they ask them questions, they're trying to determine 
the true identity of the individual. Now, the only one that's sworn to tell the truth is the man that is actually, uh, actually did that. The other two can lie their heads off. It doesn't matter. But they're trying to trick the contestant or the panel uh, and not, not let them guess who it is. So they'll ask questions, and they are trying to determine the true identity. Then at the end, they'll all vote, and then at the end, they'll have the true, whatever his name is, Joe Blow, just, will you please stand up? And so he stands up, and they decide who won and who didn't. Trying to guess the true identity, though, is the nature of the show. Trying to determine by what you ask and what you see and what you hear in the life of that individual sitting up there, trying to understand if that's really the guy that did this and if he's the one that is, is really the person that they're claiming to be. Now, the true identity shining through, the true identity coming out, that's true of all of us. Now, let me give you an example. If you are a musician, you can always tell a musician because they're always humming. They're always humming music or whistling music. And they're always listening to music. They're the person that loves to sing. They're the person that loves to play the instruments. That's just their nature, and it's hard to, to hide that because it's always coming out in the way they behave. If you are a basketball player, take a Michael Jordan. Um, if Michael Jordan is walking his dog down the street and he comes upon a, a basketball court in a park and there's some kids out there playing basketball, it's going to be very hard for him not to stop, not to go out there and watch the boys play or not to even pick up a ball and take a shot because that's his nature. And his nature or his identity is coming out in doing that. Now, how, what, here's the question. What do you do <coughs> when a person doesn't know who they are? How do they act? How does a person who doesn't know their identity act? Or if they've been told their identity is something different than what it really is, will they act like the person they really are? Now, I contend that they want. Now, here's an example. I was watching uh, one of these shows one time. This is years ago. And um, it was one of these shows where they have magicians or um, illusionists on. And this guy walks out on stage, and he takes a, a beach ball, and he throws it out into the crowd. And the people begin to bat the ball around as normally they would. And he says, now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to say, stop. And then when I say stop, whoever gets the ball, I just want to ask you to hold the ball. So he does it. He turns around says, stop. The ball falls into the lap of a gentleman that's kind of a distinguished gentleman, kind of a conservative-looking guy, you know. And he asks the guy to come up on stage. Now, when the guy comes up there, he asks the gentleman, he says, do you believe that hypnosis works? And the guy said, well, no, not really. You know, I don't believe in that. And so he said, okay, I'm going to try to hypnotize you, and let's see if this works. So he sits him down, and everybody's quiet. He goes through the process, and pretty soon he hypnotizes the guy. Now, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, this has got to be a scam. But he didn't know who was going to get that ball. That's what, the reason he did it, to show you that it's not a scam. So he has the guy raising his arms and stuff, and then he tells the guy, he said, now, Bob, you are a chicken. I want you to act like a chicken. And the guy got up, this distinguished gentleman, and started waving his arms like a chicken flapping its wings and clucking like a chicken and strutting across the stage like a chicken. Everybody's laughing. Everybody's just hollering at this. 
He brings him back, sits him down, brings him out of it, you know, snaps his fingers, whatever he does. And the gentleman's just sitting there. He had no idea what was going on. Now, let me ask you, why did he act like a chicken? The answer is this, because in that moment he thought he was a chicken. He was utterly convinced that's what he was, and that's what he began to act like. Now, I want to share with you a couple of truths as we go through this today. We'll call them axioms. I had to look that word up. It basically means something that's accepted as a basic truth. Um, So we're going to call them truths or axioms. But here's the first one that I want to share with you. And this is where we're heading now today as we go through this. Number one is this. People will generally act like the person that they believe they are. This is true of everybody. People generally will act like the person they think they are. And this is true in both positive and negative uh, situations. If you can convince your child that he's the smartest person in the world, that child will go to school with his head held high and act like a smart person. And he'll probably do better in school because he's going to act according to what he believes, what you've convinced him of. That also works in a negative fashion, too. For example... Some of you, and I believe this is true, some of this is probably the motivation behind Robert's songs here. But maybe in your life you've been told by people that were close to you that you're a loser. And you begin to think that, and though as you grow up you begin to act that way. Because that's what you're convinced that you are. Maybe you've been told that you're no good and you'll never amount to anything because of something in your past. Everybody has a past. Some worse than others. And some of us have been told through our lives that you're just not any good. You did this horrible thing and you're just an outcast. Maybe you've been told throughout your life that you're just stupid. You made bad grades in school and the kids made fun of you. They called you names. And when you get home, even your brothers or sisters or mom and dad have implied that, well, you just can't do it. You just don't have what it takes. And this is the reason why you've never applied yourself, because you've been convinced of this truth, and to you that's true, therefore you act it out. You live that way. And you grow up your entire life thinking that you're that way. And the same thing is true of us as Christians. Because we come to Christ by faith, we accept Him as our Savior, and then we begin to listen to different preaching and different teaching and different people who have an an impact on our lives, and then they begin to tell us, God doesn't love you. Look at you. Look at the way you live. Look at that thing that you did. Look at this horrible thing in your life. God can never forgive you for that. God would never accept you into his family. And I have seen, folks, I have seen it with my own eyes, people who have come into churches that I've been a part of over the years, And they are convinced that God doesn't love them. God couldn't love them. They're no good. They're a second-class Christian. They don't know what grace means. It is such a foreign term to them because they have no idea the extent of God's love for them. And they act that way. They struggle with sin. They struggle with change. They struggle with being different because they don't think they can be. They don't think that it's possible. And they don't believe that God is going to accept them anyway. And so that's how they live. You see, this is one of the biggest obstacles 
to spiritual growth that we face as believers. A person comes to Christ, they put their faith in Christ, but then they are convinced that they can't do anything, that God doesn't love them, God won't accept them, and they don't grow. They don't act godly because they're convinced that they're not. They don't act loved because they're convinced that they're not. They don't act as though they've been accepted by God because they're convinced they haven't been. And they're just hanging on with this hope. that There's a thread of hope that maybe by the end of life I will discover that God will let me into heaven by the skin of my teeth, hopefully. And you'd be amazed at the number of people that I've talked to over the years. When asked if they know for sure they're going to heaven, well, no, but I hope so. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? Yeah, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I know that he died for me. I know, but you don't know me, you see. And so they think in their minds that somehow they're not worthy. What they've done is that they have allowed other people to define who they are. They define them by their past, or they define them by the way they act today. They look at them and say they're sorry, they're no good, they're despicable, they're disgusting. And they have defined those people for them. And that's how they act. Now, today, like I said, I'm going to share with you another piece of this puzzle, and we're going to talk about your identity We've touched on this in the last few weeks. I want to spend a little bit more time on it today because this is so vitally important. Because if you don't understand who you are as a Christian in Christ, then you will continue to live according to the way you've been defined. And if you don't think that God loves you, you're not going to act like it. If you don't think that God accepts you, then you're not going to act like it. If you think that somehow God may abandon you in the end, then that changes the way you approach your Christian faith. You see, when you don't understand grace, you let all the things in life that trip you up and the sin you fall into and the decisions that you make that are ungodly at the time, you let those things define you. And what I want you to see is that only God can define you. And that brings me to the the second little axiom here or the second truth that I want to share with you, okay? And that is this, that God determines your identity, not you, not anyone else. Only God does. And so it's incumbent upon us as believers that we better understand who we are, that we better understand what God says about us, because if we don't understand it, we're going to fall prey to every teaching, every idea, every thought that comes along that tells us and implies or somehow insinuates that you didn't make it. You're not worthy. You're not good enough. God wouldn't accept you. That's a shame. And like I said before, it's one of the greatest problems or obstacles for Christians in the growth. Why would I strive to grow if I think I'm unloved or unaccepted? Why would I even try if I think that there's no way to be good enough anyway. And so you begin to see the spiral down the rabbit hole thinking that we all fall into. And this is why I keep telling you over and over again that you have to know the Scriptures. You better know what the Bible says because if you don't, somebody else is going to define who you are. 
And you need to be able to stand up and to say, no, that's not who I am. I may have made a terrible mistake. I may have sinned, you know, terribly. That's not me. I'm not going to be defined by that. Because the grace of God overrides and overpowers all of this. And you and I have got to understand that and know the Bible. I want to share with you several passages. We're not, it's not long, but I just want to take a moment and explain these to you that hopefully will help you to begin to understand. Um, this is something that you're not going to grab a hold to overnight. This is something that you have to grapple with each and every day. Because there will always be the negative, satanic, spiritual messages that say you're no good. Always. And you're going to have to work at getting past that. You're going to have to work at claiming what God says is true. Believing it. Standing on it. Otherwise, you're going to be like the Bible talks about, thrown back and forth by every wind of teaching, every idea and every thought. And you've got to understand what the Scripture says. So let's dive in, okay? I want you to turn, first of all, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a familiar passage, verses 17 and 18. Let me read them for you, and we're going to talk about them, okay? 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry. Of reconciliation. Now, I want to pick this apart for a moment, okay? The first thing that you see in here, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's talking about believers. This is a reference to a Christian. When you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are covered with Christ, the Bible says. We are covered. We are in Christ. I have no claim whatsoever before God. I cannot go up there to heaven or meet God down here and say, God, I deserve this. I deserve to be accepted. I deserve to to have heaven. I deserve to be forgiven. No, I don't. And this is why he said that nobody's going to come to me, come to the Father except through me. Because unless you're covered and in Christ, you're lost. So this is what he's saying. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ... And that's just an expression that you put your faith in him. You've been placed by God in Christ. The new creation has come. Now, don't miss this, okay? If you are a Christian sitting there today, a person who has trusted their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, then he says the new creation has come. Your new identity has come. That God has made you over. You just don't realize it. That God has given you a new name, a new identity, a new home, a new future, a new present. That God has given that to you. He says the new creation has come. The old has gone. Now he's talking about your identity. Picture it this way. If on this side of the podium is the pool of humanity that is all lost, and in this pool of humanity the Bible talks about every sin that can be imaginable, is characteristic of these people over here who are unbelievers, who have one identity, that old identity with Adam the Bible talks about. And over here on this side, we'll, we'll say this is, these are the believers. That when you put your faith in Christ, you are taken out of this pool of humanity and you're placed in Christ, the Bible says. 
And when you are placed in Christ, the old identity is gone and now the new identity has come. This is who you are now, whether you realize it or not, whether you understand it or not. This is who you are. He says, the old has gone and the new is here. And he says this, now watch in verse 18. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself. See, we have this idea, and even Christians struggle with this, that somehow I'm over here in this pool of humanity, and I come to Christ and I have faith, and then I promise God I'm going to change. I'll do my best to change. I'll go to church, repent, and do all the things I'm supposed to do, and be a better person, and somehow I get over here. You see, in our minds we're still thinking it's faith plus our good efforts. And right here he says, no, there's a new identity. You've moved from this one to this one. And it's all from God. All of it. Now, guys, this is a hard thing for us as humans to grasp. God is saying to you, you had nothing to do with it. We don't like that because we like control. We like to be able to know that we had something to do with this. And God says, no, you didn't. I did it. I did it. Now let me show you this verse, this passage, if you will. I'm going to take it one verse at a time. It's only for about four verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8. Watch this. Let me set the stage for this, okay? In the Corinthian church, there were a multitude of sinful behaviors going on. Uh, the Bible, you know, in Corinthians it talks about incest. There was... Uh, adultery, there was a fornication, there was all kinds of things. They were suing each other. They were not taking care of each other. There were fights and battles and bickering within the church, all kind of things. That's what has led up to this context. And here's what he says now in verse 8. He says, Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. And what is he saying? He's saying, look... These people in the Corinthian church, believers, and that's what I want you to understand. He says they're your brothers and sisters because you're a believer. You're over here. You're part of this group, the redeemed, new identity, but you're acting like over there. He said you're cheating people. You're being dishonest. And you're committing all kinds of wrongdoing, he says. That covers everything. Every sin you can imagine. He says, you guys are living like you're still over there. Do you not know who you are? Now understand what he, what he has told us here in this first verse. They are Christians and they are cheating and doing wrong. Those two don't seem to go together and they don't. But we have to acknowledge that it happens. And you and I have to acknowledge that a person is who is a believer sometimes, well, a lot of times, doesn't act like it. That's what we're trying to correct. Watch this next couple of verses because this has caused people a lot of concern and scratching your head and not knowing what this means. In verse 9 he says, Or do you not know? that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, 
will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he could have kept going. He just cut it short. He could have kept going and listed every sin imaginable. He could have gone on down to, well, those who lust in their hearts, those who are angry, those who hate, those who call people names and talk about them behind their back, that gossip about He could have gone on. He says, look, these are the people that are characterized by those behaviors. They're lost. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Here you are, the new identity, the new person. And lo and behold, you're acting like them. Some of us look at that verse and we struggle with it. And it's been taught this way many, many times. That this verse is teaching that salvation is conditional. Conditional. That somehow you put your faith in Christ, but, see there's the catch, the but, but you still have to do better. You still have to be righteous. You still have to act like a Christian. You still have to keep your nose clean. You still have to stay out of this cesspool over here of the way they do things. And if you don't, then you, well, some people say might lose it. Or some people just say, well, you never had it to start with. And yet Paul acknowledges these people in Corinth as believers and says to them, you're doing wrong. You're sinning. He says, and please understand, the appeal, the appeal of what he's saying is not a threat that if you don't change, you're going to hell. That's what people read into this. But you've got to look at the next verse, okay? After saying that all these people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God, in verse 11 he says this, And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the, the Spirit of our God. What? He says, hey guys, listen. He said, you and the Corinthian church, and he could be talking to Dogwood too. Some of you are making ungodly choices. And you're living over here because you think that you can't be different. You think that this is what you're tied to because that's what you've been told all your life. They're not going to heaven. You are, but they're not. Why do you live like them? Do you not understand that you're over here? The old identity is gone and the new has come. That you're in Christ and you're a different creature and you're a different person. You just don't know it. But don't you realize what he says here in this verse? He says, that used to be you, but here's what happened. You were washed. Do you realize that every one of these statements that he says is true of you is passive? It's not something you did. He doesn't say, hey, you used to be over here, but you straightened up your act and God put you over here now. You promised God you'd do better and he put you over here. He doesn't say that. He says, this is where you used to be. But now you've been washed. Who did it? Well, God did it. He's already told you that. This is all of God. 
God looked at you and washed away every sin that you ever have committed or ever will commit, and he put you over here in the family of the redeemed. He says, you were sanctified. Sanctified basically means to be set apart. Here you were, God put you over here, you were set apart. He says, and not only that, but you were justified, all in the name of the Lord and by the work of the Spirit. Justified, you know what that means? It means to be declared righteous. You see, you're over here and you think to yourself, well, I've got to be righteous to stay over here. You can't be. This is the catch, okay? This is the lie that we keep telling ourselves. I've got to straighten up and do right to stay over here. God says you can't. You're in me. You're in Christ. I washed you. I sanctified you. And I declared you righteous. That doesn't mean you act righteous. That's the goal. The goal in all of this is that we begin to understand who we are and act like it. But you're righteous because I said you are. Not because you necessarily are. Otherwise, these Corinthians that Paul talks about could not be acknowledged as believers. This is what he's telling them here. He says, you have been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. And yet you still live, some of you, like these people. Because you don't know the truth. You see, that's the big problem. You know, I've heard people say, and I've heard pastors say this. They say things like this, and it just confuses people. They'll say, I think when people get to heaven, we're going to be shocked by all the people that aren't there. They claim to be Christians, that put their faith in Jesus Christ, but they didn't live like a Christian, and they're not here. That's just another way of saying you're saved by works. I believe the opposite is true. I believe that we're all going to all get to heaven and we're going to be shocked by those that are there. Those that we never thought would make it because we were judging the flesh. We never thought they were good enough and they weren't, but we didn't understand. We thought, boy, how could God let somebody like that in? And we're going to be shocked by the people that are because grace covers the worst of us. And see, that's the beauty of it. Your identity, my friend, is something that God gave to you. You didn't earn it. Your identity is given. That's what it said earlier. It has already taken place. God did it. And Paul's appeal here in this passage that people have misquoted and misunderstood is not telling these Christians over here that, hey, You know yourself that people that do these things aren't going to heaven, so if you don't stop, you're going to be lost. He's not saying that. He's saying, God moved you from here to here. These are the people that live like that, and now it's crept into the church. Christians, don't you understand you've been washed, sanctified, justified? That's not you anymore. Now stop acting like it. Now think with me, okay, because if you understand that and all of a sudden it begins to dawn on you what God has done for you and the grace of God begins to, to, to make itself real to you and all of a sudden it's like what you thought was true just got blown out and expanded to where you know what God has done. Wow. 
How would you want to go back into this when you understand what he's done? This is why it is so critical that we as believers understand our identity. We've got to understand it. In Romans chapter 8, 1, Paul said this. He said, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That one little verse is so full of meaning and depth. Here you are. We're in this group over here. Those who are in Christ, the only thing we did was put our faith in Jesus Christ. And God placed us here, gave us a new identity. And he says that those who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. Over here, nothing but condemnation. People who die in this state over here will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who die in this condition are lost. Those that have been given the new identity by faith have been put in Christ will never be condemned. Please understand the, the, the weight of that verse. That you and I will never stand before God to be judged as to whether we're lost or saved. That took place at Calvary. And it was solidified and made real when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation. Now, let me clarify something we're going to talk about in the future here, okay, in the next few weeks. Does God deal with us because of our sin? Yes. He disciplines. He chastens. And we're going to talk about that. That's not condemnation. This over here is condemnation without Christ. But in Christ, there's not any, because that's your identity. This is who you are. Do you not understand what this is saying? That as for you, as a believer in Christ, that God's grace covers everything you ever do, that there's nothing you could ever do that would separate you from the love of God, that there's nothing in this world that will ever change your identity, because it's all of God. He did it. You didn't. So whenever you stumble or fall into sin and you do something, you make a foolish, ungodly choice, rather than us as believers beating each other up out of our self-righteous attitudes, we ought to acknowledge there's a believer that's hurting. There's a believer that needs help. There's a believer that needs to be picked up. A believer, part of the family. And you need to understand this too, that whenever you stumble and fall, and sometimes we all do in varying degrees, don't ever let anybody tell you that God doesn't love you or that God doesn't accept you or that God won't forgive you. Because you are in Christ, you're a new creation. That's your identity. And nothing can ever change it. Nothing. I want to read you this passages in Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 through 15 just listen to what he says okay based on everything that I've told you here this morning let's put this together with this passage here he says in verse 13 when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh God made you alive with Christ he forgave us all our sins now think about this here you are part of the cesspool of humanity and there you are, dead, spiritually dead in all of your trespasses and sins. He says, when you were here, 
God made you alive. See, we keep thinking we crawled across this thing somehow and got over there. We keep thinking we did it ourselves. He says, no. When you were here, dead, God made you alive. That's grace. Because God made you alive spiritually. He says He forgave you all of your sins. Verse 14, He says, Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, He has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. What? All of these people, Remember a few weeks, over the last few weeks, we've talked about the law, if you watch the videos. All of these people, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, and so on, they're guilty. They are in debt to the law. Paul says, listen, whenever he made you alive, all of your debt that you owe to the law, everything that you had broken, every sin you've ever committed, he took the law and he ripped it up. That's what it's saying. He said all that was canceled. He took it, he ripped it up, and he nailed it to the cross. He said it's paid in full. It's paid in full. Now interesting is, is this last verse. He says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities... He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, here's basically the reason I pulled this in. Not only did he save you, but he took everything that would ever be hurled against you as far as an accusation to say you're no good. He took it and he just shut them up. Just shut them up. How can you bring an accusation against God's anointed? How can you accuse those that are in Christ of being guilty and worthy of condemnation? You can't. Because what God has saved cannot be undone. And the grace of God cannot be thwarted. Guys, you need to understand who you are. Your identity, if you understand it, will change the way you live. You'll look at things and you'll, you'll, you'll be tempted to make decisions and you'll realize, wait a minute, that's not who I am. That's not who I am. I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to live like that. So I begin to choose righteousness. See, that's the key. I am righteous, therefore I choose righteousness. If you don't understand that, then you're going to always struggle because you'll always wonder if you're good enough. And so you have to understand that your identity has been changed. Let me give you this example. Let's pretend for a moment that in some ancient country years and years ago, there is a prostitute roaming the streets. girl in her 20s, been making a living on the streets all of her life. Until one day, it's, it's understood that the king has died. It, the news of it just rings through the countryside. The king has died, and there's no heir, nobody to take his place. And then they begin to go back in the records and remember that, hey, you know what? He had an illegitimate daughter. And they go find her. And they find her in that young girl, that prostitute, 
and they bring her in. They explain the situation, and now she's next in line to the throne. They sit her on the throne. They put a crown on her head, and they claim her to be the queen of the nation. Will she go back to prostitution? No. Because now she understands who she really is. When she didn't know that, she lived like a prostitute. If you don't understand who you are, you'll live like the world. And all of us need to understand the grace of God. And we need to stand up and claim it. And don't ever let anybody try to take it away from you. Don't ever let anybody try to tell you that you're less of a Christian. Because, yeah, you may struggle. And that needs to be dealt with. But God saved you. You didn't save yourself. Whenever you begin to think about that, the only logical response is gratitude. You just rise up and you say, God, thank you. That's all you can do. You can't earn it. You just say, thank you. Now, uh, we've given out these little prepackaged things for communion, and one of the best ways that the Bible has given us to express our gratitude is through communion. Because you sit there with these elements in your hand and you think to yourself about the body and the blood and you realize what God has done. You remind yourself of who you are. Now this is a new way of doing it because of the virus. We're doing this prepackaged and we're just going to take it here together. And I'm going to lead you in it and we're going to start with the bread. Please don't undo the wrong one or you're going to get wet, okay? So undo the bread first. And the bread represents the body of Christ. And when he was with his disciples in the upper room there that night before he was taken, he said, now you guys, you take and eat this because this is my body which is broken for you. He was saying, I want you as often as you remember to do this to remember me. You see, we remind ourselves when we do this we remind ourselves of what he did for us, that his body was broken for us. He sacrificed himself for us. And the more we think about that, the more we, we realize that, all we can do is say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your grace. So let's partake together in gratitude to the God that saved us. That night, the Bible says that he also took the, took the wine. And he said, now I want you to take and drink this because this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant that is going to be shed for you. The Bible tells us that it is the blood that brings forgiveness. It's the blood that wipes away and washes away our sins. And as we partake together, we are reminded of his blood that was shed for us that saved us. So we do this in gratitude and remembrance of him as we worship him for what he's done for us. Our new identity is because of what he's done for us. Let's partake together. Our Heavenly Father, Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you, Lord, that this plan of yours has come to fruition, that we are in Christ and that we are new creation, whether we believe it or not whether we understand it, Father, it is a reality. Now, Lord, as we begin to understand a little bit better, it becomes a little clearer to us, the extent of grace 
and what you have really done for us. Father, may it change the way we live. May we be fully committed to the God that has saved us, the God that has graciously given us so much. Father, forgive us when we act like the world. Forgive us, Lord, when we act like the unbeliever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.